Welcome to the MCG Podcast Radio Network. Today is Friday, July 29, 2016. My name is Snapper Plone. I am a Digital Marketing Manager with MCG Health in Seattle, Washington, and I'm joined today by MCG's Managing Editor MD, Dr. Bill Rivkin. And today we'll be discussing the recently revised definitions for sepsis and septic shock. Welcome to the program, Dr. Rifkin. Thank you. Happy to be here. So before we launch into the discussion about the recent change in the sepsis definition, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your professional background, including how you came to be with MCG? Sure. I came to MCG about seven years ago. Uh, prior to that, I was, the short answer is I was a clinician educator and a hospitalist. Uh, more detailed is I was the residency program director for internal medicine at Jacoby Hospital, part of Einstein Medical School, and prior to that was associate residency program director at various New York programs and at the Yale Primary Care Program. Excellent. Well, thank you for sharing that information with our listeners. Uh, we just want to get some context as to your professional background so we can talk about this. But in February 2016, uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association published a series of articles related to the new consensus definitions for septis, or sepsis and septic shock. Uh, can you summarize the findings for us? Sure. So th this was a series of articles in, in JAMA. Uh, it was a task force convened by the Society of Critical Care Medicine and the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine. And their work was endorsed by many other uh, U.S. and international societies that deal with patients with critical care illness. So it's coming from an authoritative source. This, was, this is an update of uh, previous definitions of sepsis and sepsis shock that were done I want to say over 10 years ago, so it's been it's been a while. So in the, in the main article, what they what they set out to do is first make the case why they had to change, or they they wanted to change the definition. And the main reason was is that the existing definitions were perceived by most in the field to be insufficient in differentiating patients with infection so infected with an organism, and those who are truly septic, or, you know, which is much sicker. And then, of course, even sicker, septic shock. So they felt like it wasn't a sufficiently specific tool to help define the population. So they sort of worked backwards, and they started with, well, what are the outcomes that would be very different between somebody who is merely infected and someone who's septic? And one is mortality. The mortality rate is much higher in septic patients, as most people perceive sepsis. And the an ICU stay would be longer. So they actually started with sort of the outcome that a septic patient will be those who have a higher mortality rate in the hospital and require treatment in an ICU for three or more days. They then looked at large databases of patients and looked at what clinical characteristics correlated with those outcomes of infected patients, patients you know, with an infection in the hospital. They, they found lots of variables and they tried to simplify it down to make it a usable tool. So the, for both sepsis and septic shock, they sort of came up with a official definition as well as a clinically usable version of that definition. So their de definition of sepsis was a life-threatening 
organ dysfunction caused by a dysregulated host response to infection. So that's the technical definition. To operationalize this and actually make it clinically useful, they defined a life-threatening organ dysfunction as an increase of two or more in a clinical score called the SOFA score, or the Sequential Organ Failure Assessment Score Due to Infection. The, the, this SOFA score is a previously developed tool that measures a patient's function across various domains, respiration, coagulation, liver function, cardiovascular status like blood pressure, mental status, and renal function. And each of these is scored on a continuum from zero, which is normal, to four, which is very severe. So using this tool, an increase of two or more in this score, so it can be in one organ system or across two organ systems, due to infection is what they mean by sepsis. What they then did was, so that's the sepsis. In a companion article, they, they wanted to then get at, well, what's the definition for septic shock? And again, they had a, a, a technical definition, which was that septic shock is a subset of sepsis in which underlying circulatory and cellular or metabolic abnormalities are profound enough to substantially increase mortality over that of sepsis alone. So it's even sicker than sepsis, uh, dire illness. In clinical terms, they, they translated this to the presence of, despite adequate, so after adequate fluid resuscitation, a patient is still hypotensive, requiring vasopressor therapy to maintain a mean arterial blood pressure of 65 or higher, and a serum lactate level greater than two. This definition is rather strict. There was a, a bit of discussion over whether they should include both the lactate and the hypotension as part of the definition. But again, their point was to really seriously define a particularly sick group of patients. So the decision was made that this is a group that is so sick that even after fluid resuscitation, they need vasopressors to maintain a blood pressure, and they've already experienced the ramifications of hypotension by having an elevated lactate level. So in your opinion, how will these new definitions affect current healthcare delivery, and how do they compare with other clinical definitions or risk assessment tools? So this is sort of the rub. Um, these are very precise definitions, which are presumably very good at doing what they were designed to do, which is identify patients who, due to infection, are very, very sick. That is a little bit different or significantly different from what people sometimes think these tools are used for, which is to help with a clinical decision. There are examples, which I'll get to in a second, of clinical decision tools or just definitions of things that help in deciding what to do with a patient. Um, this definition wasn't really designed for that. In fact, a, they say so in the article and an accompanying editorial by Abraham says that this new definition specifically you know, one of its weaknesses is that it's not going to be very useful in the treatment of individual patients. So, and I'll, the reason for that is that what this definition, as I just explained, it defines a very sick population of patients. 
it's not really a question of whether somebody who meets this level of illness requires a hospital. They clearly do. And it's also not clear that, um, you know, this is going to help in the decision of whether they even need an ICU or not. Um, they have a separate subscore um, that is a junior version of the SOFA called the Crick SOFA, which is designed to be useful for, gee, there's a patient on another floor in the hospital who's not looking so good. How can we decide what can help us decide whether or not they need to go to the ICU? But that's sort of a, a, a subcategory. I mean, the main point here was to find a very sick group of patients, whether it's for research re reasons, epidemiological reasons. There could be sub-treatment decisions in terms of specifically what antibiotics to use or what, what variables to monitor for improvement or worsening of their clinical condition. But importantly, this, this defines a much sicker group than would be necessary in, you know, in the emergency room trying to identify does this infected patient need to be admitted or not. An example of clinical tools that sort of help with the admit-don't-admit decision would be the Pneumonia Severity Index, or the PSI. Um, that's a tool that, based on various clinical and patient-level variables of a patient presenting to an emergency room with a diagnosis of community-acquired pneumonia, helps risk stratify which should be hospitalized, which should be observed for a little bit, and which are safe to go home. And none of these tools are perfect. You know, it, it, certainly a lot of clinical judgment goes into it. But the design of this was to help with that admit-don't-admit decision. Um, other examples would be the International Prostate Symptom Score, IPSS, is a um, tool used on men with benign prostatic hypertrophy who are having symptoms related to that problem, urinating, that sort of thing. And it is a tool to quantify how bad are their symptoms despite treatment, such that an intervention like a uh, TERP or something like that it, it might be indicated. So again, it's a tool aimed to help you decide, do the procedure, or gee, it, it might not really be necessary yet. This tool, this sepsis tool, is, is not designed to help with that sort of clinical decision. It's really about classifying whole groups of patients by level of illness, again, with the outcomes of mortality and IC, a need for an extended stay in the ICU. Well, so our listeners may, may or may not know this, but our company um, that you and I work for, MCG, produces some of the most widely used care guidelines in the U.S. And as such, uh, many healthcare providers and payers you know, have asked why we did not revise our guidelines based on the newly determined definitions. So can you take a moment and just explain why such changes were not mandated when it came to this particular de definition change? Sure. Now, that's a very good question. So some of the, some of the answer is, is what I just said, is that it's defining this, this particular definition is defining a group of patients who are so very sick, it's well beyond admit, don't admit type of decision. Some of it requires a little bit of knowledge about our, our content. The content that's relevant to this is clinical guidelines that are used to help, just help evaluate along with clinical judgment, how sick a patient is with various conditions, including fever or, and suspected sepsis or bacteremia, and 
when might an admission be be indicated versus observation care versus send them home for the ED, from the ED without patient follow up. Now, we, so I, as I explained, this sepsis definition is too crude an instrument for that decision. Now, that's mm-hmm. not to say that pieces of this of this definition are not useful. In fact, pieces of the definition, you know, changes in mental status, changes in respiratory status, changes in blood pressure, changes in renal function, you know, the very elements in, in, in the SOFA tool are, are very much in our criteria. But I think that's sort of the point. It's pieces of them. You don't need to have a SOFA score that changes by two to get admitted. You know, there, there's much more subtle changes and signs and symptoms that might indicate a need for admission. So we use pieces of it. I mean, we're all barking up the same tree. Per se, defining somebody as septic is not what the people are trying to do in the emergency room in terms of a clinical decision. What they're trying to do is, is decide not only how to treat this patient initially, okay, does, does this patient require a hospital? And you wouldn't want to be the patient who is, the doctor says you have to be septic to get in the hospital. That's, that's way too sick. That's sort of the reason why this is, a, we use similar pieces to it, but the definition as a whole is not appropriate for this use case. So we have had, you know, there have been people who've reached out to us and said, you know, will the new definition be incorporated into MCG's 20th edition, which came out earlier this year, I believe, you know, as an update, or will we see the information notated in our 21st edition, which is due in the first half of 2017? Yeah, that's another good question. I believe it's very likely that for the 21st edition that certainly, you know, major definitional changes like this are certainly of medical interest. We'd like to cite it and, and, and describe it. So, for example, in places in our content where we use terms like sepsis, sepsis septic shock, we might very well include reference and you know, explanation of, of, of what these terms are now considered to mean clinically and officially. But none of that use would affect decisions, you know, sort of the core of our guidelines of what level of care is appropriate for a patient or what are the recovery milestones of a hospitalized patient such that you can decide they look better, what's better mean, what does better look like, when might they be ready for discharge, what are some common reasons that people need to stay longer in the hospital. These are the things that we include, and this definition per se, while interesting, and technically correct, would not be useful in those types of areas. So it would be cited and discussed, but it wouldn't be some sort of um, major missing element until it was placed in at all. You know, the MCG guidelines have been pretty consistent in the area of admission criteria for infected patients. Uh, What do you think gives our guidelines such long-term consistency? Well, this question sort of touches upon sort of what one means by something being evidence-based or up-to-date while at the same time being clinically useful and valid. So, of course, uh, we we pride ourselves on being up-to-date and evidence-based, but there's a difference between, you know, incorporating every change as an emergency so that you can say that you're up-to-date and point to a new citation or footnote and actually 
including changes that are clinically useful for the, for the use case of, of our content. So actually, this sepsis definition is a pretty good example of that. It's actual use in clinical care and clinical decision-making in real time is going to be limited and not very pertinent. So it's new, it's a change, but our goal is to guide patient care decisions like admit, don't admit, length of stay, when are they ready for discharge. So pieces within this definition certainly are part of that, but the definition per se is not. So again, the, the idea that something has to change because there's a new citation versus something has to change because it's actually different. So there are areas of medicine that are very fast moving. You know, so interventional cardiology and indications for various procedures and, and, and things like that does move very quickly. Um, conversely, and can change year on year, conversely, something like what type of patients with a fever or who you think are infected with pneumonia, UTI, whatever it might be, need to be hospitalized, well, that doesn't change substantially year on year. You know, the, the way you describe a sick patient with pneumonia is very much similar year to year. And so change in that area can actually be unnecessary change, can actually be detrimental. First mm -hmm. of all, you want to be consistent, and your users want to sort of become familiar with your content. And then there's sort of, you know, the real use of evidence-based medicine is not only is something new, but it's shown to be useful and effective. So, for example, changing admission criteria for patients because there's a new definition, even, you know, that, that, that is also fraught with peril because, the, you know, until, it, until, let's say, the pneumonia severity index, until it was shown to safely uh, triage patients into sick and less sick, using it was experimental, and it should not have greatly informed your decision-making. You know, it's sort of the difference between a tool existing and a tool being validated and, and used in practice and seen to be useful and safe. So in general, that's our, that's our mantra, that we want to be up to date, but at the same time, we want to make sure the changes are made that are necessary and that are effective and safe in terms of patient care. So from your professional point of view, how are MCG's guidelines and data unique in the healthcare industry? Well, this sort of gets at the, the, the reason I came to MCG. Um, you know, one of my interests was, was going over this and teaching about this concept of unexplained clinical variation. Really, anybody who's looked at the healthcare system has come to the conclusion that there's all types of variation in care, whether it's you get a procedure, you get a test, you get admitted, how long you stay. Really, any clinical decision varies all over the place. And unexplained means it's not thought to be due to, well, this patient, you know, the patients in New York are sicker than the patients in San Francisco. That's why more patients with pneumonia are admitted in the New York area than in the San Francisco area. It's, that's not felt to be an explanation. So it, it, it's, it's unexplained. So with our guidelines, we try to get at that issue really from a global perspective and describe really across all levels of care, but the area I'm interested in is the hospital level, and sort of at a clinical, objective way describe who is sick 
and then what that looks like, and then the recovery process of what looking better looks like. So there's not many guidelines, frankly, that, that, that get at that. There's lots of guidelines to tell you how to treat somebody with pneumonia, what drugs to use, what dose, and that sort of thing. There's, a, there's not a lot, and this is maybe one of the reasons for all this variation uh, of information about, well, what are the specific criteria for admission? And so that's one level. Another level is our, our content is based upon the, you know, the peer-reviewed literature, textbooks, specialty society guidelines, that sort of thing, but is also informed by analysis of large, all-payer, all-country, you know, all-America, all-over-America databases of, of patients and measuring care. So one of the interesting outcomes of this, you know, if you ask the average clinician what percentage of Medicare patients with COPD who present to your emergency room are admitted in the country, you know, what type of number? Almost every doctor can tell you how to treat them. Most, a lot of doctors can, can tell you, okay, this is, this is what I, these are my criteria for admission. But you'll get answers. I've asked this all, every talk I give, and the answers are usually much higher than the actual percentage, which is 50%. So there's areas of the country that are significantly above that, and it's not so. Part of our use case, and I think what what is unusual in in, in the healthcare industry is actually publishing and including these sorts of benchmarks and, you know, medians, medians, ranges, you know, there's all types of regional, national, there's all types of ways of, of slicing the data, but giving actual information. You know, length of stay has sort of been out there for a long time and people have an idea about, okay, you know, two days versus three days, but things like admit rates, readmission rates, use of various uh, intensive resources, how often that's done by different docs in different places, it's not really known very much. So it's certainly not presented to clinicians on a regular basis. So one of the things that we try to do is put that information in the hands of the clinicians so that they can do things like examine their local practice and, and benchmark it and re-examine whether, gee, it, we're admitting twice as many syncope patients as, as other areas of the country. Let's re-examine it. Let's look again at the clinical indications in MCG and see if we are, you know, admitting the right patient. So I think it's that combination of criteria around utilization and benchmarking that makes us unique. Well, I appreciate your perspective on that, and that's really great information for our listeners, and I very much appreciate you taking the time today to discuss the sepsis definition changes with our listeners as well as providing your insights into our guidelines and solutions. So thank you. And I hope you'll join us again for future healthcare topics. Sure, I'd be happy to. Thank you very much. As a note for our listeners, MCG guidelines and software are the gold standard in the care guidance industry. One U.S. hospital saved over $2 million within its first year of implementing our informed care strategies. And nearly 80% of the U.S. health plan payer market uses our content and solutions to improve the patient journey and increase the efficiency of healthcare delivery. If you'd like to learn more about us or find out how to purchase our guidelines and solutions, visit our website at www.mcg.com and click Contact. Or you can call us toll-free at 1-888-464-4746. Thank you for joining us today.